Chapter Twenty Three of God's Country and the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Three. Jean's thrilling words burned into Philip's consciousness like fire. They roused him from his stupor and he began to take in deep breaths of the chill night air, and to see more clearly. The camp was empty now, the men were gone. Only Jean was with him, his face darkly flushed and his eyes burning. Philip rose slowly to his feet. There was no longer the sickening dizziness in his head. He inhaled still deeper breaths, while Jean stood a step back and watched. Far off in the forest he heard the faint barking of dogs. They are running like the wind, breathed Jean. Those are Renault's dogs. They are two miles away. He took Philip by the arm. I have made a comfortable bed for you in Pierre's teepee, monsieur. You must lie down, and I will get your supper. You will need all of your strength soon. But I must know what is happening, protested Philip. My God, I cannot lie down like a tired dog, with Josephine out there with Lang. I am ready now, Jean. I am not hungry, and the pain is gone. See, I am as steady as you, he cried excitedly, gripping Jean's hand. God in heaven, who knows what may be happening out there? Josephine is safe for a time, monsieur, assured Jean. Listen to me, Netoutam. I feared this. That is why I warned you. Lang is taking her to Thoreau's. He believes that we will not dare to pursue, and that Josephine will send back word she is there of her own pleasure. Why, because he has sworn to give le monsieur the confession if we make him trouble, mon Dieu, he thinks we will not dare, even now, Metutum, six of the fastest teams and swiftest runners within a hundred miles are gone to spread the word among the forest people that Lange, or Josephine, has been carried off by Thoreau and his beasts. Before dawn they will begin to gather where the forks meet, twelve miles off there toward the devil's nest, and tomorrow... Jean crossed himself. Our lady forgive us, if it is a sin to take the lives of twenty such men, he said softly. Not one will live to tell the story, and not a log of Thoreau House will stand to hold the secret which will die forever with tomorrow's end. Philip came near to Jean now. He placed his two hands on the half-breed's shoulders, and for a moment looked at him without speaking. His face was strangely white. I understand everything, Jean, he whispered huskily, and his lips seemed parched. Tomorrow we will destroy all evidence and kill. That is the one way, and that secret which you dread, which Josephine has told me I cannot guess in a thousand years, will be buried forever. But, Jean, I have guessed it, I know. It has come to me at last, and, my God, I understand. Slowly, with a look of horror in his eyes, Jean drew back from him. Philip, with bowed head, saw nothing of the struggle in the half-breed's face. When Jean spoke, it was in a strange voice, and low. Monsieur? Philip looked up. In the fire-glow, Jean was reaching out his hand to him. In the faces of the two men was a new light, the birth of a new brotherhood. Their hands clasped. Silently, they gazed into each other's eyes while over them the beginning of a storm moaned in the treetops, and the clouds raced in snow-gray armies under the moon. 
breathe no word of what you may have come to tonight, spoke Jean then. Will you swear that? Yes. And tomorrow we fight. You see now, you understand what fight means, monsieur. Yes, it means that Josephine... Tch! Even I must not hear what is on your lips, monsieur. I cannot believe that what you have guessed is true. I do not want to know. I dare not. And now, monsieur, will you lie down? I will go to le monsieur and tell him that I have received word that you and Josephine are to stay at Bruyere's tonight. He must not know what has happened. He must not be at the big fight tomorrow. When it is all over, we will tell him that we did not want to terrify him and Miriam over Josephine. If he should be at the fight and came hand to hand with Lang or Thoreau. He must not go, exclaimed Philip. Hurry to him, Jean. I will boil some coffee while you are gone. Bring another rifle. They robbed me of mine and the pistol. Jean prepared to leave. I will return soon, he said. We should start for the forks within two hours, monsieur. In that time you must rest. He slipped away into the gloom in the direction of the pit. For several minutes Philip stood near the fire, staring into the flames. Then he suddenly awoke into life. The thought that had come to him this night had changed his world for him and he wondered now if he was right. Jean had said, I cannot believe that what you have guessed is true. And yet in the half-breed's face, in his horror-filled eyes, in the tense gathering of his body, was revealed the fear that he had. But if he had made a mistake, if he had guessed wrong, the hot blood surged in his face. If he had guessed wrong, his thought would be a crime. He had made up his mind to drive the guess out of his head and he went into the teepee to find food and coffee. When Jean returned an hour later, supper was waiting in the heat of the fire. The half-breed had brought Philip's rifle along with his own. "'What did he say?' asked Philip, as they sat down to eat. "'He had no suspicions?' "'None, monsieur,' replied Jean, a strange smile on his lips. "'He was with Miriam. When I entered, they were romping like two children in the music-room. Her hair was down, she was pulling his beard, and they were laughing, so that at first they did not hear me when I spoke to them. Laughing, monsieur. His eyes met Philip's. Has Josephine told you what the Indians call them? he asked softly. No. In every teepee in these forests they speak of them as Ka Sekahawan, the lovers. Ah, monsieur, there is one picture in my brain which I shall never forget. I first came to a dare house on a cold, bleak night, dying of hunger, and first of all I looked through a lighted window. In a great chair before the fire sat le monsieur, so that I could not see his face and what was gathered up close in his arms. At first I thought it was a sleeping child he was holding, and then I saw the long hair streaming to the floor, and in that moment la florette, beautiful as the angels I had dreamed of, raised her face and saw me at the window. And during all the years that have passed since then, it has been like that, monsieur. They have been lovers. They will be until they die. Philip was silent. He knew that Jean was looking at him. He felt that he was reading the thoughts in his heart. A little later he drew out his watch and looked at it. What time is it, monsieur? Nine o'clock, replied Philip. Why wait another hour, Jean? I am ready. Then we will go replied Jean, springing to his feet. Throw these things into the teepee, monsieur, while I put the dogs in the traces. They moved quickly now. Over them the grey heavens seemed to drop lower. 
Through the forest swept a far monotone, like the breaking of surf on a distant shore. With the wind came a thin snow, and the darkness gathered so that beyond the rim of firelight there was a black chaos in which the form of all things was lost. It was not a night for talk. It was filled with the whisperings of storm, and to fill up those whisperings were an oppressive presage of the tragedy that lay that night ahead of them. The dogs were harnessed, five that Jean had chosen from the pack, and straight out into the pit of gloom the half-breed led them. In that darkness Philip could see nothing, but not once did Jean falter, and the dogs followed him, occasionally whining at the strangeness and unrest of the night, and close behind them came Philip. For a long time there was no sound but the tread of their feet, the scraping of the toboggan, the patter of the dogs, and the wind that bit down from out of the thick sky into the spruce tops. They had travelled an hour when they came to a place where the smothering weight of the darkness seemed to rise from about them. It was the edge of a great open, a bit of the barren that reached down like a solitary finger from the north, treeless, shrubless, the playground of foxes and the storm winds. Here Jean fell back beside Philip for a moment. "'You are not tiring, monsieur?' "'I am getting stronger every mile,' declared Philip. "'I feel no effects of the blow now, Jean. "'How far did you say it was to the place where our people are to meet?' Eight miles we have come for. "'In this darkness we could make it faster without the dogs, "'but they are carrying a hundred pound of teepee, guns, and food.' "'He urged the dogs on in the open space. "'Another hour, and they had come again to the edge of forest. "'Here they rested.' "'There will be some there ahead of us,' said Jean. "'Renault and the other runners will have had more than four hours. "'They will have visited a dozen cabins on the trap-lines. "'Pierre reached old Cascassoon and his swamp-crees in two hours. "'They love Josephine next to their Manitou. "'The Indians will be there to a man.' "'Philip did not reply, but his heart beat like a drum "'at the sureness and triumph that thrilled in the half-breed's voice.' As they went on, he lost account of time in the flashing pictures that came to him of the other actors in this night's drama, of those half-dozen Paul Revere's of the wilderness speeding like shadows through the mystery of the night, of the thin-waisted, brown-faced men who were spreading the fires of vengeance from cabin to cabin and from teepee to teepee. Through his lips there came a sobbing breath of exultation, of joy. He did not tire. At times he wanted to run on ahead of Jean and the dogs, yet he saw that no such desire seized upon Jean. Steadily, with a precision that was almost uncanny, the half-breed led the way. He did not hurry, he did not hesitate. He was like a strange spirit of the night itself, a voiceless and noiseless shadow ahead, an automaton of flesh and blood that had become more than human to Philip. In this man's guidance, he lost his fear for Josephine. At last they came to the foot of a rock ridge. Up this the dogs toiled, with Jean pulling at the lead trace. They came to the top. There they stopped, and standing like a hewn statue, his voice breaking in a panting cry, Jean, Jacques Croisset, pointed down into the plain below. Half a mile away a light stood out like a glowing star in the darkness. It was a campfire. "'It is a fire at the forks,' spoke Jean above the wind. "'Mon Dieu, monsieur, 
Is it not something to have friends like that? He led the way a short distance along the face of the ridge, and then they plunged down the valley of deeper gloom. The forest was thick and low, and Philip guessed that they were passing through a swamp. When they came out of it, the fire was almost in their faces. The howling of dogs greeted them. As they dashed into the light, half a dozen men had risen and were facing them, their rifles in the crooks of their arms. From out of the six there strode a tall, thin, smooth-shaven man toward them, and from Jean's lips there fell words which he tried to smother. "'Mother of heaven! It is Father George, the missioner from Baldneck,' he gasped. In another moment the missioner was wringing the half-breed's mittened hand. He was a man of sixty. His face was of cadaverous thinness, and there was a feverish glow in his eyes. "'Jean Croisset!' he cried. "'I was at La Jeuse when Pierre came with the word. Is it true? Has the purest soul in all this world been stolen by those godless men at Thoreau's? I cannot believe it. But if it is so, I have come to fight.' "'It is true, father.' replied jean they have stolen her as the wolves of white men stole red fawn from her father's tepee three years ago and to-morrow the vengeance of the lord will descend upon them interrupted the missioner and this jean your friend is monsieur philip d'arcomble the husband of josephine said jean as the missioner gripped philip's hand his thin fingers had in them the strength of steel la Dieu told me she had found her man he said. May God bless you, my son. It was I, Father George, who baptized her years and years ago. For me she made a dare-house a home, from the time she was old enough to put her tiny arms about my neck, and lisp my name. I was on my way to see you, when night overtook me at La Jeu's. I am not a fighting man, my son. God does not love their kind. But it was Christ who flung the money-changers from the temple. And so I have come to fight." The others were close about them now, and Jean was telling of the ambush in the forest. Purple veins grew in the missioner's forehead as he listened. There were no questions on the lips of the others. With dark, tense faces and eyes that burned with slumbering fires, they heard Jean. There were the grim and silent Futels, father and son from the caribou swamp, tall and ghost-like in the firelight, more like spectre than man was Jeunesse, a white beard falling almost to his waist, a thick marten-skin cap shrouding his head, and armed with a long-barreled smooth-bore that shot powder and ball. From the fox-grounds out on the barren had come Mad Joe Horn, behind eight huge male-mutes that pulled with the strength of oxen. And with the missioner had come Le Dieu, the Frenchman, who could send a bullet through the head of a running fox at two hundred yards, four times out of five. Cascassoon and his crees had not arrived, and Philip knew that Jean was disappointed. "'I heard three days ago of a big caribou herd to the west,' said Jeunesse, in answer to the half-breed's inquiry. "'It may be they have gone for meat.' They drew close about the fire, and the Futels dragged in a fresh birch-log for the flames. Mad Joe Horn, with hair and beard as red as copper, hummed the storm-song under his breath. Jeunesse stood with his back to the heat, facing darkness and the west. He raised a hand, and all listened. For sixty years his world had been bounded by the four walls of the forests. It was said that he could hear the padded footfall of the lynx. And so all listened while the hand was raised, 
though they heard nothing but the wailing of the wind, the crackling of the fire, and the unrest of the dogs in the timber behind them. For many seconds Jeunesse did not lower his hand, and then, still unheard by others, there came slowly out of the gloom a file of dusky-faced, silent, shadowy forms. They were within the circle of light before Jean or his companions had moved, and at their head was Cascassoon, the Cree, tall, slender as a spruce sapling, and with eyes that went searchingly from face to face with the uneasy glitter of an ear-mines. They fell upon Jean, and with a satisfied ugh and a hunch of his shoulders, he turned to his followers. There were seven. Six of them carried rifles. In the hand of the seventh was a shotgun. After this, one by one, and two by two, there were added others to the circle of waiting men about the fire. By two o'clock there were twenty. They came faster after that. With Bernard from the south came Renault, who had gone to the end of his run. From the east, west, and south they continued to come but from out of the northwest there led no trail. Off there was Thoreau's place. Pack after pack was added to the dogs in the timber. Their voices rose above and drowned all other sound. Teams strained at their leashes to get at the throats of rival teams, and from the black shelter in which they were fastened came a continuous snarling and gnashing of fangs. Over the coals of a smaller fire simmered two huge pots of coffee, from which each arrival helped himself, and on long spits over the larger fire were dripping chunks of moose and caribou meat, from which they cut off their own helpings. In the early dawn there were forty who gathered about Father George to listen to the final words he had to say. He raised his hands, then he bowed his head, and there was a strange silence. Words of prayer fell solemnly from his lips. Partly it was in Cree, partly in French, and when he had finished a deep breath ran through the ranks of those who listened to him. Then he told them, beginning with Cree, in the three languages of the wilderness, that they were there to be led that day by Jean-Jacques Croisset and Philip d'Arcambeau, the husband of Josephine. Two of the Indians were to remain behind to care for the camp and dogs. Beyond that they needed no instructions. They were ready, and Jean was about to give the word to start when there was an interruption. Out of the forest and into their midst came a figure, the form of a man who rose above them like a giant, and whose voice, as it bellowed Jean's name, had in it the wrath of thunder. It was the master of Adair. End of chapter 23